So tonight, what we're going to talk about, the most frequent thing that students come to talk to me and make appointments to come talk to me in my office about is negotiating their career. And they come with different questions. How should I choose a career? What job should I take? How do I negotiate my salary? How do I negotiate with difficult people in the job? How do I get out of a job? And they all involve negotiation. There are two primary things that we'll talk about tonight. One is specific transactional negotiations, such as salary, job transitions. And then, not surprisingly for this course, relationships, kind of how you manage the relationship throughout your career so that you have a more successful and happy career. What I'd like to do is start by talking a little bit about my career and not doing so in a way to say that this is the right choice. This is just kind of what happened to me. Um, there's some good things that I've learned from that, some things that I wish I'd done differently. We'll start by talking about that, and then we'll get into some of the assumptions and the lessons uh, from that. So when I was five years old, I decided I was going to be a fireman. And I remember sitting on the corner with my friend Peter Kelly, and we got very detailed, you know, which station, how we were going to slide down the pole, you know, who was going to drive the truck, and I was absolutely sure I was going to become a fireman. Fast forward to when I was 17 or 18, I was absolutely convinced I was going to be a professional tennis player. And if you would have asked me, well, but what about business? What about law? What about medicine? Your father's a doctor. Nope, I'm going to absolutely be a tennis player. Now, some of you know some of the jobs that I've had. I was never either a, a very good tennis player or a fireman. And as sure as I was at those stages of life that I knew what I wanted to do, if you are, in fact, sure that you know what you want to do now, you're likely to be wrong. You're likely to change your mind and look back and think, I can't believe I wanted to be a management consultant. I can't believe I wanted to be um, you know, a banker, whatever it is that you're thinking currently that you want to bank. So keep that in mind and question a little bit your assumptions. So I grew up very typically, um, you know, uh, white male in the suburbs, um, had the usual influences. As I mentioned, my father was a doctor. Uh, his friends were lawyers uh, in real estate, and I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't like medicine. I, I sort of didn't really have a particular affinity to the sciences. And I thought, when I was uh, an undergraduate at, at Brigham Young, I thought, well, lawyer, that sounds good. I mean, I can stay in school. It's very intellectual. Um, that would be a great thing to do. So I got a legal internship after my junior year uh, undergraduate, and I had the luck, the good fortune, one of my, my parents' good friends were the O'Connors that lived down the street, and Sandra O'Connor became the Supreme Court Justice um, when I was a kid, and so I had this good connection in Washington, and she helped me get an internship, and she set me up with lots of people in the law, so people in corporate law, people in litigation, people that were prosecutors, and I had all these informational interviews. And I would recommend, sort of point one of tonight is, do as much informational interviewing as you can. The more you can talk to people about what they like, what they don't like about their jobs, you will save yourself lots of pain. And I was luckily able to save myself from those informational interviews a lot of pain because I wouldn't have been a very effective attorney. Um, it turns out that every single attorney I spoke with, I came away with the impression after I had lunch or coffee or whatever we did, of, wow, he or she doesn't really like their job. And so I met with Justice O'Connor at the end of the summer, and I said, oh, thank you so much for the internship. Thank you for setting me up with all these informational interviews. It was really interesting, but people didn't seem to like their job that much, so I'm not going to become a lawyer, but I definitely want to go to law school because I think it's a good general education independent of what I want to be later. Um, so will you please write me a letter of recommendation? You know, I want to go to Yale Law School. I think that'll be, that'll be a great place for me. And she gave me advice, which I've never forgotten. I've passed on to others, which is law school is a very specific education targeted at the law and not very generalizably applicable, um, particularly if you want to do business. 
And I asked a couple people if they felt the same way. People said, yeah, law school, it's really about becoming a lawyer, in fact. And that was surprising to me. Um, and I decided not to go to law school. And I decided, you know, what I really want to do is learn French. I don't care what I do um, for the job. I just want to learn French. And so I was able to get an internship in France. And I came back um, for my second year of business school. And I made the decision, you know, I've kind of done good things in the past. I have a pretty solid resume. I'm kind of in my mid-20s. I'm not just going to take a job to get to the next level, to sort of build my resume. I'm going to do something that I think is fun. And I committed not to take interviews, second year of business school, any place that I wouldn't consider working. I wasn't just going to explore work through interviews, which led to the, the people that were interviewing at Harvard Business School just weren't people that I was excited about interviewing with, so I didn't do any interviewing my second year. And I thought maybe I'd just travel afterwards. I'd really enjoyed my international experiences. And uh, I met a guy at a party, my the sort of spring quarter of my second year, and he was working at this group called the Harvard Negotiation Project. And he started talking to me about it, and we became friends, and we played squash a couple of times, and he sort of slowly lured me into the Harvard Negotiation Project, and I ended up going to work there. It sounded interesting. This guy, Roger Fisher, had written a book called Getting to Yes, and all of you have, in my course, have read that. And I thought, wow, negotiation sounds kind of neat. I don't really know what it is, but that sounds kind of good. I'll do that. And so I went to work and worked um, soon after that as a mediator, and I didn't even know what a mediator was. And it didn't matter. The qualifications, just like my job in finance, I didn't know what a bond was, I didn't know what a mediator was when I started mediating. Qualifications didn't matter. And I thought I'd do that for a year. But it kept being so interesting. Each year I'd work at a different part of the world. I've told some of the stories in class about how much I traveled. I was in about 75 different countries during those 10 years, doing all kinds of different stuff. So it kept being fun, and so I kept with it. Eventually I decided to transition for two reasons. One is I felt like gosh, I've been working at this Save the World nonprofit organization for 10 years. I better do something on the corporate side and actually make some money. And I was traveling so much, I wanted to settle down and have a community. So I came out here to Silicon Valley, and I thought, I want to learn about technology. Now, I don't have any background in technology. I'm not qualified, but I bet I can find someone that will hire me. It was the late 90s, and anybody, even me with a liberal arts undergrad and a a business degree without any technology, could get a job. And so I got a job at a, a small startup. There were five people there before I got there. It was called Easel. We built a graphical interface for Linux, so you can use Linux on desktop computers. And those of you that are engineers know that if you take a liberal arts guy with a business degree and put him in a Linux company, it's not obvious. I mean, I was running Linux on my desktop, and I could barely spell Linux, but it didn't really matter. About six months into it, I was speaking at Linux users group meetings to engineers, and you know, the startup, like so many startups in the late 90s, went way up and way down, and you know, we actually didn't get our second round of funding, so I spent 10 years doing it and learned some things. Uh, but it didn't work out financially. It didn't, didn't make uh, the millions that everyone was hoping to make when I came out here in the late 90s. So the next question was, well, what do I do now? I thought, okay, what I really want to do is make some money. My background in negotiation um, is sort of, how do I apply that to making money? I thought, well, I'll start an investment bank. And people said, well, you can't start an investment bank. I mean, you're not qualified. You had two years as an analyst years ago. That doesn't really qualify you to start an investment bank. But I met this other guy, and we talked about it, and the two of us started Arbor Advisors, and that was eight years ago. And we had quite a bit of success and and fun doing it. The point to that is I wasn't qualified to start an investment bank, and it didn't matter. And so I think the the point here of so many students come to me with a linear approach, like I need to do this and this and this and build my resume over time. And I just don't think now, obviously in some careers, you you know, if you're going to be a neurosurgeon, like my father was, you can't wing it. Um, you got to have the right training and, and go to medical school and have residency and a, and a fellowship. But for most business roles, and many of you will go into business, whether it's sales, marketing, you know, corp dev, biz dev, I don't think that that much of it is that difficult. And I think you can sort of work your way into whatever job you, you want. And so 
So that message is really important, that don't follow a linear path because you think that's the only way to go forward or have fun in your career. Um, qualifications often don't matter. The other thing that I've learned, this last bullet point, is that switching around between the private sector, the public sector, uh, the academic sector here being with you has been really fun. I, I think that I'm better at teaching because I have a job where I do negotiations and I tell you guys those stories during the daytime. I'm better in the, in the private sector because I have experience in the public sector and some of those lessons um, are interesting. I started a nonprofit once and ran that and that was an interesting experience. And so I think you can go back and forth between sectors and still you know, have fun and have success and move forward. Um, I think that people end up in the wrong careers often. Um, and I think part of that is that they make unhelpful assumptions. And as we've talked about in the negotiation class, a lot of bad decisions come from making unnecessary assumptions. So I just wanted to write down a couple of these here that I think are key assumptions that people erroneously make that sometimes get them in trouble. Um, the first one I've alluded to, it's about building your resume. So don't do things because you think it's what other people want you to do. Um, you're not going to be able to outguess them. You will likely, if you do things that you feel passionately about, find similarly minded people or people who appreciate your experience, and you'll fit in somewhere. I think that trying to outguess what people want is a bad decision. I think that you get to tell your story. So when I, I interview lots of people, in, including students for jobs, and what I'm interested most in is what's their story? Why did they make the choices they made? And you get to craft that story. And so I don't think that focusing too much on how someone else is going to interpret or judge your story through a piece of paper is worth spending years doing something that you think is painful. Um, which relates to the second bullet point. People say, well, I'm just going to do this job for two or three years. I'm going to hate it, but it's going to get me to the next level. I think the most important criteria when thinking about how to choose a job is pick something you think is fun, that you're going to enjoy. You're going to prosper, do well in things that you're having fun with. And so it isn't about sort of pain. Now, work, you know, there's a reason they call it work. There's a reason they pay you. It's not all fun. Uh, there's going to be some of it that's probably drudgery, particularly in junior-level jobs. But I think that taking a job just so you can move forward and get to another job is generally, um, you know, at the, the pain of that outweighs the gain. You have to choose a career now. So um, most of you will move around quite a bit. Um, your first job, you're likely to stay in for two or three years. If I look back at my experience... So there were 800 of us at Harvard Business School that graduated, and they kept track of how long we stayed in our careers. So across 800 students, the average um, tenure in their first job at a business school was 11 months. Okay, that was the average, and I stayed 10 years. Um, so choosing a career or a job is not necessarily a long-term decision. There's plenty of time to try lots of different things. You know, I thought the, the whole word career, I think, is even becoming irrelevant. I thought, how do I title this something different? Is it negotiating jobs? Is it negotiating experiences? But you're not going to have, most of you, long-term careers where you're at a company and you get a gold watch after you know, 30 years of service. The world has changed. And so people think that the first job out of school is such a huge decision, and I don't think it is. We'll talk a, a little bit about how to make that choice. But just if you could subtract that anxiety, you're more likely to end up in a, in a position that's actually fun that you enjoy. Specialization is the best route to success. I think that's a faulty assumption. I think that we live in a world where there's increased specialization pressure. People want you to specialize. But actually what you want is to be a generalist, and for a bunch of reasons. Number one, it's more fun to have different projects. You don't want to be that person who knows the, let's say you go to an investment bank and everybody knows how to use the program Excel. Lots of you already, already know how to use Excel. You don't want to be the top person in Excel. 
there are diminishing returns to spending all your extra time being the best at PowerPoint, the best at Excel. It just doesn't matter. I remember when I was uh, doing spreadsheets, uh, we didn't even have Excel. It was Lotus 1, 2, 3. And you know, all the skills that I learned at Lotus 1, 2, 3, I was great at macros. I was really quick. It, I never do it anymore. I never use it. So special, the, one of the dangers of specialization is it's going to become irrelevant, whatever you specialize in. And I think that what you want to do is put yourself in a position to take advantage of opportunities when they come up. The world is changing so quickly. I mean, just look at the Internet and the different evolutions of the Internet during you know, the last five years. Who could have predicted what would have happened in different components? And so I think you want to opportunistically be in a position to take advantage of those changes. And if you've got the blinders on, you're trying to build your resume, you're over-specializing, you can't even take advantage of those things when they come up. The best jobs are not people who interview on campus. Generally, people who interview on campus look at your analytical skills as students, and they want to pay you X and get you know, X plus Y return on investment, and they're generally going to have you be very, very specialized. And so just question that assumption. I think that general process skills, I'm biased, but one of them in my mind is negotiation. If you're effective at negotiation, I think that's translatable across industries, across types of jobs. And so think about those sort of horizontal and people-oriented skills. We'll talk a little bit later about people skills, um, more than kind of specialized skills in business. There's an assumption that people have that you cannot have balance. The whole first part of your career, the first 20 years, is all about sort of making money, digging down, getting ahead, and then you can relax and, and retire on a beach somewhere. And I think that that's also um, leads to unhealth um, in my experience. I think you can have balance. I remember in my first job, um, you know, investment banking, New York. Um, most of you know what that job looks like. I mean, it's sort of 100 hours of work, and you're just a slave, and you do whatever the senior people leave you at 8 o'clock at night on their desk and say, have ready at 7 o'clock uh, the next morning. Um, <clears throat> to me, balance has always been really important. And um, one of the things, so I like to exercise and work out. I like to do things in the outdoors. Um, I have uh, life in my church. Um, I have friends. So, you know, giving up my life for two years just seemed like a bad proposition. And as soon as I got to that job, I realized that's what they were asking. They were saying, no, for two years, you're our boy and you're going to do whatever we ask you. So I sat down with my manager. I said, look, um, you know, I've got other interests and um, there's some things that are really important to me. And in my church, um, what we do is, you know, the Mormon church, as some of you know, there's no paid clergy. Um, people volunteer for roles. And I was, uh, I was actually asked to be the scoutmaster uh, for a troop of Boy Scouts. And so, you know, that's not the easiest thing to do while you're pulling off being an investment bank analyst. You have weekend activities. You have a meeting every Tuesday night. And so I sat down with my manager and I said, look, I know this is going to seem a little bit nonstandard, but this is really important to me. And I want to be judged for the work product that I do, not how many hours I'm there. You know, I don't want to work. I don't want to get any less done than anybody else. But I want to tell you that this is a really important thing, being the scout leader. And I essentially cut a deal with him. It said, look, you know, I'm going to be judged on my work product. And what was amazing is everybody in the organization got really into the fact that I was the scoutmaster. They just thought it was so nonconventional, you know, junior investment banker, scoutmaster. And the scouts, I had uh, probably mistakenly, the first scout meeting, I'd given them all my business card. It was the first time I had a business card in life. And I thought that was really cool. I said, call me anytime. So they would call all the time. And so over the intercom, there I am at, you know, this big high rise on Wall Street. And, you know, the, uh, the receptionist says, uh, Stan, we've got a scout on line three, one holding on line four. But it got me out of an amazing amount of work because people basically rallied around. No, no, Stan, we can't give him any work for the weekend. He's got a camping trip. We've got to take care of the Boy Scouts. That's very important in the community. And so, you know, it seems a little bit ridiculous in retrospect, but I have found that, that lesson translatable in subsequent jobs. If you sit down and you talk about what's important to you, 
most people. So for me, that's important. It might not be important for some of you, but balance is important to me. I don't want to do one thing all the time. You know, people always ask, well, how are you teaching two classes at Stanford? You know, you're running an investment bank. I do it because it's important. And you can make things in your life work if they're important to you, and you communicate effectively with your peers, you know, your, your bosses about that. So I just don't believe that you have to give it up all for work. I don't think any job is that interesting. There's nothing that I could do for 60 hours a week and be happy. Um, so I think, for me, it's been better to be a generalist. So how do you choose a job? Um, we've talked in the negotiation class about the, the principle of objective criteria and coming up with standards. These are mine. I'm not saying they should be yours. I'm just trying to give you a sense of kind of how I would choose a job if I were in your shoes. To me, the number one and most important thing is geography. Where you live is going to have a bigger impact on your happiness, your learning, your friends than any other factor. So I would think about where you want to live. There's a lot of jobs you can do a lot of different places. I mean, some of them are specialized and you have to be, you know, in a limited location. But in general, you could probably live wherever you want to. For those of you that haven't lived internationally, I would consider that. The best things that I've learned have all come when I've been traveling and overseas. And people say, you know, if I was asked what are the things that I know that I'm most proud of, that I've found most useful, I would say being fluent in Spanish and fluent in French has just helped me so much in life. And I really you know, enjoy those things. I couldn't have done those had I not lived you know, in France for a while or Central America for a while. And so I would consider you know, when you're young and flexible, living overseas, I just think it's a fantastic experience. Not for everybody. I think that I would try to pick a dynamic and growing company. So people all the time come to me and say, well, should I join a big company or a small company? What size company? I don't think there's necessarily a correlation. Well, there is somewhat of a correlation between you know, size and dynamism, probably inversely correlated. But I think what you want to do is end up at a place that is dynamic because you want to be able to change jobs and change roles within your jobs. There's lots of different tasks. Um, and growing, because a company that's growing, you're more likely to be promoted more quickly and get you know, new responsibilities. What's the ideal size of a growing company? I don't know. Um, you know. Someone asked me this question the other day, and I thought about it. It was actually one of you. And I said, you know, probably if a company has at least 50 people, there's enough structure there where, you know, you've got um, structure that you can learn from. But it's not, you know, if it's 500 people, there's probably a lot of structure, and you're going to do, you know, less. And so somewhere in that range, um, I think you get a lot of interesting responsibilities. I think Silicon Valley is a great place for those kind of companies because there's so much growth and dynamism. I think I would look for a learning organization, an organization that isn't just trying to put you in a pigeonhole. And so the questions that I would ask when I was, if I were doing informational interviews is, you know, other people that have come out of Stanford, what have they done? How have they progressed throughout the company? What do you do in terms of training? What do you, you know, how, it, you get a sense of an organization and whether it's a good place to learn or not. And for me, that would be near the top of the criteria. Um, you get to pick the people you work with, and I would be when I interview uh, people for jobs at Arbor Advisors, the number one thing I think about is, is this someone that if I'm traveling on the road and we're having dinner together in Minneapolis, I was in Dayton, Ohio a couple, week couple weeks ago, and I'm going to be with a colleague, am I going to enjoy the dinner I'm going to have with that person? You know, being on the road with someone, you get a good sense of you know, how much extra time, and there are people that I've worked with, I think, oh my gosh, you know, I have to have dinner with him, it's going to be a nightmare. Other people, I'm like, I can't wait to, to get together, we'll have a fun time tonight. So, you know, pick people that you want to be with. You're going to be working a fair amount, and I think you do get to choose your colleagues and the type of organization that you want to be a, a part of. This last bullet point, what stories you get to tell about your job. So, it was really interesting. So, my first job in investment banking, I go to parties, 
And I would say, yeah, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm doing an investment bank, I'm an analyst, and immediately they'd want to change the subject, right? Like, oh, yeah, 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 you're just doing spreadsheets. We know, we know that job, we know what you do. Then I became a mediator, and I was traveling around the world doing conflict resolution, and I was in Colombia mediating between different guerrilla groups and the government. And that's a great cocktail party conversation. People want to continue the conversation. And so I just thought, wow, it, it was so interesting. And I've done different jobs. The ones that I'm most excited to speak with people about it gives you a tremendous sense of self-worth, of happiness. You know, if you're, I mean, let's just, you know, pick on the financial industry. I mean, if you're an accountant, okay, and you walk up to someone at the party, no one wants to talk to you about the audit you just did. Like, how'd that go for you? you know, did both sides of the balance sheet, did they, they work out? I mean, is that, that, wow, how was that? You know, nobody cares. You know, do you want to be that accountant at a, at a cocktail party? And so pick a job that creates good stories and learning for you and that you enjoy talking about because a lot of your self-esteem, your self-worth is going to come from what you do. My current job, so I've returned to investment banking in a very different way, in a different role, and we'll talk about that later. But when I go to parties now, I say, yeah, I can have, you know, I can have one and a half jobs. I say, really, like, what, half job? What's that? I'm like, well, you know, I teach a couple of classes at Stanford and I, I run a small investment bank. They're like, oh, you teach at Stanford? That's great. Let's talk about that. No one wants to talk about banking. Um, <laughs> So think about that as a criteria. It's, it's made a difference for me. Um, so how does negotiation serve as a career management tool? We've talked a lot in the class about the fact that this course is all about relationships, right? It's about how do you create them, how do you maintain them, how do you deal with people that are difficult. And all organizations, be they academic, public sector, private sector, are going to have relationship issues, they're going to have politics, I know academics are probably the hardest politics. I mean, if I were going to sort of talk about where the easiest places to negotiate and the most difficult places, I would say academics is the absolute worst. I mean, it's the most hierarchical, the most bureaucratic. Egos play the biggest role. You know, only slightly better is government. You know, better than that, slightly, is probably the nonprofit sector. Slightly better than that, you know, some NGOs in the nonprofit sector. And then corporate, I would say, you know, it's the easiest to negotiate. It's the most fluid. Um, now, again, that doesn't push me to recommending one over the other, but you're going to have to work out difficulties and differences in whatever organization you join. And your skill and your ability to manage those differences is going to have a tremendous impact on how quickly you get ahead and how much fun you have. So negotiating up and down in, in organizations. Someone gave me the advice not long out of business school. It said, you know, an, the index of someone's character is how they treat people when they're in the power position. So if I'm the boss, how I treat my subordinates, how I treat it, it, my organization, the administrative people, that's the index of my character. And it's amazing to me to watch people as they go up in organizations often do the exact opposite. They treat the people right below them a little bit bad and the people right below them a little bit worse and the administrative people the worst of all. So how you sort of manage the process of, of dealing with people who aren't necessarily in an empowered position, I think says a lot about your skill level and your abilities as a negotiator. Now, negotiating up in an organization, I've been interviewing a lot of laid-off bankers recently. So, as most of you know, the bulge bracket uh, banks, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world, Lehman Brothers is, is really you know, um, basically out of business, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, all suffering. So a lot of them are interviewing at little boutiques like Arbor Advisors. And it's interesting when you call people's references. It has been an interesting experience for me to call people, say, 10 years out of business school and ask for the references. What happens is you develop a reputation, and your reputation is going to come through your references. And no one has an unscathed reputation. I've never called someone's references and not had them say, well, you know, he or she does these six things really well, and they could probably use a little bit of work you know, in this department. 
And so what you want to do, one of the common comments I have about mid-level people, say, you know, five or six years out of business school, is, yeah, the reason they were laid off is they didn't do that good a job of kind of managing the politics of the organization. You know, they were really good at creating a good relationship with the person they're working for, but they didn't really develop allies throughout the organization. And when it came time to cut people, you know, they were kind of low man or low person on the totem pole. And so I think it's really important that you manage sort of not only through the groups that you're a part of, but other pieces of the organization and then people that report to you or, or administrative people. And people often, often miss that one. You're going to deal with difficult people. If I were going to say one truism in the whole presentation today is it is guaranteed that you're going to learn or going to have to deal with difficult people in life. Uh, obviously, we're in a section of the class right now where we're talking about how to have a difficult conversation. That's one subset of it. But people, as they uh, progress in the sort of hierarchy of life, spend more and more time managing people and less and less time doing analysis. So people my age, all I talk to my friends and, and colleagues about is, oh, yeah, this, you know, this guy at work, he's such a nightmare, and I spend all my time sort of cleaning up after people's messes. And it's the people skills that end up being difficult. And so if you are adroit and skilled at doing the things like we've been talking about in class, how to have a difficult conversation about the way an employee is treating another employee, or how to bring up a problem that you have with your manager, or how to tell the administrative person, give them feedback on their performance that's negative. All of those kind of conversations are difficult conversations. And if you're skilled at those, you're just going to move through organizations quickly because so few people are good managers. Negotiate a personal operating plan. I was uh, uh, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, recently in a, in a conversation with him, with him uh, that I was recently a part of. He said, you know, at Google, we're hiring senior people. We asked them to submit, as part of the interview process, their six-month operating plan, what they're going to do for the first six months. He said, now, now I'm, I'm violating his trust, I guess, as I, as I think about this. He said, you know, we don't want this widely known, but uh, we never read those. We just want people to have something to do when they show up the first day on the job. Um, it is very, very important that you, whether you're writing your operating plan or negotiating with your boss about what you're going to do, that you are clear with him or with her about what you're going to do and that you're measured by that. It's always surprising to me that the first six months in organizations, people often are very fluid and, yeah, we just want you to kind of get up to speed, realize what we're doing, and you'll be much more productive more quickly if you kind of sync up and negotiate an effective operating plan. Now, it's also very important that you negotiate your performance review. So performance reviews are something, you know, it's just a, one of these, like, death and taxes. They're, they're necessities. They, almost all organizations do them at least once a year. And most people aren't very good at them, either in giving feedback or receiving feedback. And essentially, that's a negotiation. And so what you want to do is have them go over the right things. And so I would hate to get to the end of a year with my manager and be surprised by things. And so think of performance review as ongoing. Different organizations have different structures, but don't let the organization's structure of doing reviews drive that for you because it's probably not adequate, and you can help manage that process by looking at that as a thing that you negotiate throughout the year as opposed to just waiting until the end of the year. Someone once gave me the advice, and I've used it, always, always, always be working on your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So if you are you know, an employee at Google, let's stick with, um, with that company just for example, you should always spend some part of your day or your week or your month thinking about, hey, you know, if the world came to an end at Google, either by my choice or someone else's choice, where would I go and what, I would, what would I do? I think it's important to maintain relationships throughout industries. Think about where you go. If you kind of have that constantly in your back pocket, 
it makes you feel much less dependent on a person or an organization, and it means you'll probably think about moving around more frequently. And so I see way too many people getting streamlined in an organization. They never even think about what else they might do. And then five years later, they say, wow, I probably stayed in this job a couple years too long. And so spending some part of your time thinking about developing your alternative to whatever your employment is, I think is good advice. Institutional loyalty. Balancing institutional loyalty with your need to grow personally is a tricky balance. You know, how do you do that? I had a, a professor undergraduate at Brigham Young who his, his whole academic career was, was essentially dedicated to the notion that organizations are abusive by their nature, and all organizations, and he, he basically convinced me of that. And the organization's interests and the individual's interests are at tension, and you have to sort of figure out how to manage that tension. The, the care with which you manage that tension will directly affect your happiness at work and how much you learn. So first, from the kind of institutional perspective, it's, I remember my first job on Wall Street. So I walked in, had never really had a full-time job, and I couldn't believe it. I was at this storied investment bank, and my first couple months, I was like, I can't believe they do things so stupidly here. I mean, how could they not understand that there are all these problems? And they seem like they should be so easy to fix. And I remember myself thinking very critically about the organization. And the other people that were in my training program, that there were 40 of us, they were kind of similar. Like, wow, it's amazing they make any money. I mean, all these stupid things they do. Now, I look back on that now, and I realize that it's extremely easy to observe the problems in organizations. So in my organization, it's small. There are 12 of us. And I bet if, if I did a survey at my company of what are, you know, if you had to pick three problems at Arbor Advisors, what are they? My guess is everyone would come up with the same three things. There's no big mystery about what the problems are. I'm not that interested as the manager of them identifying the problems. What I really want is people who want to tackle those problems and make the organization better. So take, for example, our website. Our website, it's dated. It needs to be better, probably content-wise and design-wise. People will grumble about that. And every person I say, yeah, would you like to take that on as a project? I'd love to get the website. Oh, yeah, I guess it's okay. You know, we, can, we, can, we can live with it. Um, and so I'm much more interested in people that deliver solutions and are effective at managing problems than identifying them. And so when you find yourself in that critical role of, gosh, it's so obvious. We should have a new website here. I can't believe these guys at Arbor are so stupid. Take that problem on. And what I'm looking for at my organization is people that will take on a problem, solve it, and as soon as they do, I'm going to give them another problem to solve. That's what you want as the boss, is you want problem solvers, not analysts who are really good at noticing what, what's wrong with things. Um, I think you want to establish a reputation of integrity and trust in organizations. Your reputation will be the most important thing that you carry from that organization throughout your career when you move organizations. Be a person, just choose right now that you're going to be a person that is completely trustworthy. I was uh, interviewing uh, someone once and getting a reference on them, and the reference said, you know, he is pathologically honest. I mean, he could not lie if he tried. I just, how happy do you think I am to hear that? Pathologically honest. I mean, wow, that sounds great. You know, I think we hired him. Um, if you are known as a person who is trustworthy, you will be easy to work with. You know, you know, I... If, if I'm your manager and I know that you're going to follow through on what you say you're going to do, you're going to show up when you say you're going to show up, it just becomes incredibly easy to work with you. And again, as a hiring manager, that's what I'm looking for. How e we were, we interview, we're interviewing Stanford students right now, and one of the questions I asked the other associates is, how easy do you think he or she would be to work with? Would they do what they say they're going to do? Would they get things done? That's super important. And so having that kind of a reputation of being trustworthy, super important in your career. I think you want to change roles and responsibilities frequently. 
Um, I don't think there are that many jobs that are that interesting for more than a couple of years. Now, that doesn't mean that within an organization you couldn't move around frequently, like I did um, when I was doing mediation as, as part of the consulting arm of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Um, that job, I stayed with it for 10 years because it was like 10 different jobs in 10 years. I just kept doing things that were unrelated to each other. They pushed my learning. But be careful of getting stuck too long in a job um, and negotiate that movement within an organization. And quickly after that, I would say, if you, if you are unhappy in your job, move on. I would say that's a mistake that I've made in my career, which is almost every transition that I've made, I've thought about and thought, I knew six months ago that I should have moved on, or a year ago that you know, that job was beat for me. I mean, I, I think that people don't move quickly enough when their intuition tells them to. And you know, life is too short. I was talking to a friend the other night about ice cream. We were talking about, what kind of ice cream do you like? And, and, and she's put out like this kind of generic store brand. I said, how can you eat that stuff? I mean, you only get so many bites in life. Eat Ben and Jerry's. Um, I think with jobs, there are only so many days you have to work. Do not spend time in a job you do not like. There, there, all of you have infinite potential. Your task is to find a place that values that potential and that you can be happy and productive in. And so the idea that I talked about earlier, which is you don't need to adopt the martyr syndrome, short-term I'm going to suffer so that eventually when I grow up I can start to have fun. People tend to have a slippery slope when they're in those kind of jobs, and they tend to not leave. And so I would say, quick story comes to mind. Years ago, a friend of mine who was an attorney in Toronto called me, and he said, you know, Stan, I hate my job. I mean, every day I kind of come in, and I read these documents, and I just feel like it's hacking away at my character. Every, you know, every day I'm less of a person when I leave the office. And I said, well, Tom, this is bad. I mean, we've got to do something about this. You need to quit that job immediately. You're going to become a fragment of a person if you're a lawyer for another day. He called me the next day, and he said, you know, what you said was really impactful. So I just, right after that, I walked into the senior partner, and I said, I quit. I'm out of here. And I said, well, Tom, I was just kind of exaggerating. I mean, <laughs> think about it for a day. And his father actually called me. What are you doing to my son? He's an attorney. He's having a great career. Um, so that was a little bit of an exaggerated uh, response to my, my advice. But I think it is generally true that once you know it's not the right fit, move more quickly um, than not. Most people stay too long in jobs that they're not happy with. Compensation. So, um, this is, so I would say this is the number one thing that people come and talk to me about. So I'm going to moralize a little bit about it, then I'm going to get practical and tell you how to get some. Uh, I think that uh, money's often the great booby prize. Okay? I look at my 10th business school reunion that I went to not too long ago, and the people who had made the most money, and a lot of people make a lot of money at a Harvard Business School. You know, my path of 10 years in a nonprofit was, was not the most traditional. The people who made the most happy were had made the most money, were the least happy, were the most often divorced, um, there isn't necessarily a correlation between money and happiness. And for some reason, when you don't have money and you're a student, you think that would free up so many options and it would be so great. Well, a couple of things for someone that's a little further down the path. A, it's not that hard to make money. So if you, know, you guys are all going to have a Stanford education uh, when you leave this place, and you're going to be in a position where if you choose to make money, you can. You know, I didn't do a job that was very, you know, had very high level of remuneration until I was in my 30s. And once I started doing that, it wasn't that hard. And so I think that question the assumption that what you should do is make as much money as possible, and that should drive your decision making. Because I think there's an inverse relationship between the jobs that pay a lot and the jobs that make you a better person and a happier person. Quick story. So my roommate uh, from New York, when I was an investment banking analyst, we both went out there together. And he wasn't that likely to stay in investment banking. He just didn't seem like the personality. 
Um, but he did, and I didn't. I, I got out of there as soon as I could and went to business school because I hated it. But he stayed in it. His name was Doug. And about 10 years later, the following happened to him. He was married, had several children. One was in kindergarten, and his son's name was Jack. And the teacher in kindergarten went around to the kids at kindergarten. And they said, we want to talk about what your parents do for a living uh, and learn, you know, about this is employment day. We're going to talk about jobs. And so she got to Jack, and she said, Jack, what does your dad do? And Jack said, well, my dad's dead. And she was really surprised. She said, gosh, you know, I didn't know that, you know, your father had passed away. And she called Diane, Doug's wife, that night. And she said, Diane, so, so disappointed and sorry to hear that your husband passed away. Is Jack going to be okay? He hasn't seemed to miss a beat in class. Seems like a happy kid, but, you know, so sorry that your husband passed away. And Diane said, oh, no, no, Doug, Doug's not dead. Um, he just travels a lot of time for business. Jack thinks he's dead. <laughs> And so Doug, when he returned from that business trip, not surprisingly, heard that. I mean, how would you feel as the parent to hear that story? So he quit his job the next day. And they moved from New York to Denver, and he's been in Denver ever since, and he's much happier. Now, he's still working for an investment bank, but a much smaller boutique, kind of a little bit like the, the company that I run, where you know, success isn't measured by you know, how long you work and how much money you necessarily bring in. So there are jobs that meet your different lifestyle requirements. Money is often the booby prize. Beware. Um, institutional influences are overwhelming. Nobody here is strong. Nobody that I know of is stronger than the institutions they join. Be they your school, your church, your job, your family, all these things affect you. I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I'm going to go be a management consultant, but I don't want to become like a management consultant. I mean, that's not what I want to be when I grow up. And I, I think that is what you're going to become. You're going to become a tool. It's going to happen. <laughs> Um, you're gonna, everything's going to be a two-by-two two matrix in your life. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, um, a prerogative of the teacher. But it, it is hard to not have institutions and people. I would say the same thing for people. Choose carefully your colleagues, right? They're going to rub off on you. And so institutional pressures are very, very, very strong. Um, and don't underestimate that. Short-term compensation. You know, I know I sound like a bre broken record on this, but... When you're kind of in your 20s, uh, certainly coming right out of school, the delta between what you can make at a really high-paying job and a really low-paying job isn't that great, okay? Um, you're going to be in a position, most of you, somewhere down the line to make more money if you choose to make that a priority. But fighting for the last $3,000, $5,000 early on in your career, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And so I just... So many people come in and negotiate with me, and they're like, oh, I want $1,000 more. It's like, it's not that big a difference. The, the amount, I had a guy recently, um, that, not too long ago, that joined Arbor, um, who just pushed so hard on compensation, so hard, that it just made me not want to hire him. And that is going to be more difficult to make up later for him because of the you know, difficulty that caused in the relationship. And so don't push too hard on that, because at this stage, it doesn't make that big of a difference between the low end of what you could get and the high end of what you could get. Student loans. I get a lot of students saying to me, but, you know, I've got these loans and I came to Stanford and it's super expensive and so I have to take, you know, let's just stick with these jobs, investment banking or consulting job because they pay, you know, $5,000 more. So I would, I would encourage you to think differently about student loans. Think not about what is your debt, but think what is your debt equity ratio. Long term, I don't know of any of my students who have had a hard time paying back their loans. Um, eventually you will pay back those loans, and unless you are literally a single parent coming out of school, I just don't think that's the most important thing. The negative externalities they're creating by taking a job you don't like to pay off your loans a little bit earlier far outweigh the benefit. And so think about your debt equity ratio. You guys all have an excellent credit rating if you look at it that way as opposed to just focusing on the debt. 
Remuneration follows performance. Um, I remember when I started in my career thinking, wow, I'm doing a great job and nobody notices. They don't get it. You know, I'm doing all these things that other people aren't doing. People notice, okay? If you're doing a good, I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than to do something, you know, extraordinary at work and have it found out by your manager by stealth, right? You don't need to go around and advertise what a good job you're doing. You cannot hide. If you're doing a great job, people absolutely recognize it. I am looking for people to pay more at Arbor Advisors. So I, I'm just looking for excuses to pay them more. Because if I find someone that's good, I'm going to do everything I can to keep them, including, including paying them more. And so just do a good job. You will be found out. It's just not that likely that there's a conspiracy and no one recognized it and you know, the bonus wasn't fair. I just think people focus way too much on that. You'll be found out if you're doing a good job. So that's all nice and a little bit moralistic. But let's talk about actually negotiating um, your salary and your compensation. Because you are going to have to do that. Um, so the first thing I would say is job negotiations aren't just about the money. We've talked in class about the problem. Once you start talking about money, it's hard to talk about other things. So make a list of the things when you're negotiating um, your job. And let's say you're negotiating at Google. What are some of the things you're going to negotiate? Well, you're going to negotiate your salary. You're going to negotiate you know, possibly your time off. You're going to negotiate your roles and responsibilities. You might have some say about what group you work in or who your manager is going to be. You might have some say about your start date. All those things are easier to talk about before you talk about your compensation because once people start talking about money, they tend to not have a very easy time talking about other things. And so you want to look at compensation as a basket of things as opposed to just your salary, number one. Um, Bring objective criteria to the table. So let's, let's say that you're going for that job at Google. Objective criteria means outside standards about what you should get paid. So you want to know what other people at Google are being paid for that role. You want to know what people are being paid at Yahoo or Microsoft or other similar companies. And you want to come with that kind of information. Because you basically want to be paid, certainly out of school, what's fair. Okay? And the only way to know if it's fair is to attach it to some outside objective standard. It is always surprising to me, this seems very intuitive and very obvious, but most people don't do this homework and know it. Second element we've talked about class that's really important for salary and job negotiations is know your alternative, okay? If you sit down with a hiring manager at Google and you guys can't come up with an agreement, what are you walking to? Do you have a job at Yahoo? Do you have a job at Microsoft? So knowing your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, and going into that negotiation, knowing what your walkaway is, gives you a lot of power. Right? And I would often go to the place I wanted to work second most and negotiate as much as I could there and get my offer solidified as much as I could. And then I would go, if my first choice in this case, this example is Google, then I go with that offer from Yahoo in my back pocket, knowing what my alternative was. That gives me a lot of power in the negotiation. Try, if you can, to negotiate with your boss, your direct superior. Um, it's difficult um, when you're dealing with one person in a negotiation, then you're going to go work with someone different. Why is that difficult? Well, number one, the HR people often, um, to use them as an example, will promise you all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, you can definitely be in that group, and you'll work on that. And then you talk to the hiring manager, and there was a lack of communication between the two. And so to the extent that you can, you want to work out your roadmap and plan out you know, your operating plan, the other things that we've talked about, with the person you're going to be working for. It's also very important that you get as much in writing as you can. I can't tell you how many students have come to me a couple months in their job and say, well, you know, it was great. I got this offer at Google. They told me I'd be in the you know, product marketing division and search. And I got there, and it was totally different. And so I think it's really important to get things on paper so that expectations are clear. 
um, and operational and implementable, and people sometimes don't do that. Uh, quick comment about gender, and I've mentioned this to, to some of you. It, it turns out that men and women do approach job negotiations very differently, and there's some fun research on this. So uh, a large study was done of a, a group of, I think it was business school students, and of that group, over 60% of the men that were uh, in this study asked for more compensation independently of what they were offered. So, you know, $50,000, I want more. 60, I want more. 70, I want more. 80, I want more. I'm worth more than 100 if that's what you're offering me. It didn't matter. The men just wanted more. Okay? Conversely, women with the same, same education background offered the same salaries. Less than 10% of them asked for more. Women tend to feel, and again, these are generalizations, women tend to feel, oh, I'm lucky to have a job. I don't want to stir any waves. You know, um, I want to get things started off on the right foot. The male attitude, I want more. I'm worth it. They have no idea how good I am. I'm going to be killing it for them. Um, and so there's a difference. And so that gives you a little bit of a sense, both if you're you know, hiring men or hiring women or you're a man or a woman looking for a job, that we tend to have different approaches. Whether you're a man or a woman, what you want to be paid is what's fair. And that's an often very good strategy if you're seeing the salary level different than they are. If you guys see a different world, say, look, um, I kind of came in with higher expectations. Um, let me kind of walk you through how I got there. Um, you know, I looked at what they were paying at Yahoo. I talked to people there. In fact, I looked at, at Google itself, and you guys are paying your product marketing managers in this department X. I'm not sure why I should be paid lower. I just want what is fair. I don't want to be pushy, but I want it to be fair, and that just doesn't you know, reconcile with where I came from. Where did you get your number? You know, what is your standard? And so use that objective criteria to your advantage. So finally, um, the last thing I want to talk about before we have some Q&A around this and some discussion is job transitions. Just like negotiating your way into a job is a negotiating, leave is a negotiation, leaving a job is a negotiation as well. Um, so case study of two employees at my organization who have left, and one left, you know, I, I think very well based on the way that he did it, and one didn't leave so well. So the guy who left well, and I, I of course won't use names, um, he came to me one day and he said, you know, I, I've been here um, three years, and I just feel like I'm not really moving forward in the organization. I want you to know that I've started to look around at other jobs. Um, there are always kind of trickinesses to, to transitions, but I wanted you to know that. I wanted to th figure out, can we work out a transition plan that works for both of us? Okay? So what do you think my, my response to that as a manager is? My response was, like almost any manager, wow, um, I really appreciate you coming to me in that spirit. And I can kind of see from your perspective that you've kind of you know, squeezed all the juice out of, the, out of this lemon. We probably don't have the next level role for you here. Let's figure out how to make that work. And in this situation, he ended up staying for six months in the transition. We ended up getting a client that was going to be about a six-month assignment. I gave him the option of working on it. It was some new stuff for him. And it ended up just being a tremendous, uh, you know, effective transition both for the clients, for our firm, and for him. And we're still in touch. He emailed me today, in fact. I got an email from him today about some different things, and you know, that just provoked, it launched a positive relationship. Another employee, um, you know, the financial industry is kind of funny about transitions. There's a lot of uh, proprietary information, and so often at big banks, what they'll do is, you know, if they're going to let somebody go, they'll walk them to the door, they'll bring security in and shut down their computer, and there's sort of an awkwardness. We're obviously not that kind of a bank, but still there's some fear about people taking proprietary data, and he'd come from a big bank, and so I want to give him a little bit break, of a break on this. But he came to me and he said, you know, can I come talk to you in my office? And I thought to myself, wow, you know, this guy's like four levels below me in the organization. He's kind of commanding me to come to his office. Something's up. This is weird. He wouldn't normally, you know, take this kind of an approach. So we walked in his office 
And we sat down, and he handed me his letter of resignation. He said, I'm resigning effectively. I'll, you know, be packing up my things today, and I'm gone at 5 o'clock. And my response was, I mean, I tried so hard not to just burst out laughing because it was just so ridiculous. I mean, it was, like, very hostile. He's trying to put on the game face. You know, I'm out of here at 5 o'clock. I said, wow, you know, that's surprising. Um, You know, I hadn't seen that coming. That's interesting. What I'd like to do is talk about that a little bit. I mean, you've got a bunch of clients you're working on. We want to transition that work. And he was just so difficult about it. And he just left things in a mess. And we were cleaning it up for six months afterwards. Um, And I haven't talked to him since, okay, not surprisingly. And so the last impression that you make at an organization, and you're going to have transitions, right? None of you are going to work somewhere for the next 50 years. Um, the last impression you make is what stays with the people you left behind, not the first impression. I have no idea what my first impression of him was on the first day of the job. I absolutely remember how he left. Um, and so think about making those transitions with grace and using some of the skills that we've been over in the negotiation class. That's a difficult conversation. It's hard to pull it off well. But if you do, your reputation is going to follow you. Employers don't like surprises. That's kind of intuitive based on what I just said. And, you know, Organizations are worried about the work. They're worried about things like, what's the effect on the other people? What's the effect on the clients? How are we going to find someone to replace you know, that person? And so helping with those kind of things will get you a long way into building the reputation of being trustworthy, like we talked about before, and you know, basically being someone that someone's happy to see again in the street. I mean, someone recently brought up the metaphor of the shopping mall test. And I said, what's the shopping mall test? And he said, well, like if you're in a mall and you see someone walking the opposite way, do you walk over and talk to them or you kind of put your head down and walk away? I mean, you want to be the kind of person that is excited to see the people that you've left behind in organizations as opposed to like, you know, how do I avoid this person? And gee, I'm, you know, found out. Um, I think that it's important, and most organizations don't do this, but asking for an exit interview. So when you are leaving... As we've discussed in class, there's tremendous lessons to learn from any negotiation. And that's definitely true from a job. So things that you did well, you kind of want to hear about it. You want to get a sense of it. Things that you could have done differently and learn from that because what you want to do is take the, the lessons that you've learned from a negotiation perspective, from a transaction perspective with you to the next organization and always think of yourself as in a position to need to learn stuff and be that person, not only that's looking for a learning organization, but wants to be a person that provokes learning for themselves and for others. So when you think about the role of all, all around of negotiation in jobs, it's really fundamentally about two things. One, the transactions that you have to do, things like leaving jobs, things like negotiating compensation, things like having a difficult conversation with your manager, those are transactions where the art of negotiation, which is how effective are you at persuading and influencing, how effective are you at having difficult conversations, these are the two principal things from the course, how good are you at that stuff? Okay? That's going to have a huge bearing on how successful you are in your career. And number two, what kind of relationships do you build? Okay? Do you build allies in your organizations? Okay? Are you a person who people say, we couldn't possibly lose him or her? I mean, she knows so much about the organization and has such good relationships. You know, we have to lay off, as many companies are doing right now, lots of people. We can't afford to lose her. That's the person you want to be, as opposed to the, wow, he or she, they, they, they just are so pushy. They're thinking about their own interests. All they care about is their own learning, their own compensation, how they fit in. They're kind of, they've got the blinders on, and they weren't that helpful. You want to be the former kind of person And if you have these kind of skills and you negotiate well, I would say that you'll do better in your careers. Okay, let's take, um, what time is it? Let's take a couple of minutes, probably 15 minutes of just Q&A. Any questions, thoughts? Probably 15 minutes to talk about any of this. Yeah. You mentioned how 
not being qualified doesn't really matter for some jobs, but how do you get a job that you're not really qualified for, but looks that you might be interested in doing? Okay, so let me give a, a two-part answer to that. Number one, if someone came to my firm, okay, and they didn't have a lot of finance background, what would I need to see for them to get over that hurdle? Because it's easier to hire someone that's worked at another bank or taken a bunch of finance or accounting classes. Number one, desire for the job. Okay? So few people that I interview, do I get the sense at the end of the interview, he or she is dying for this job, they would do anything here, they're going to get ahead. So I'm looking for people who are winners, they're aggressive, and they're going to get ahead. That plays so, I'm, I'm always looking for the athlete as opposed to the person who you know, has training. Um, so are they a good switch hitter? Can they figure things out? Because most of the things that we do at a bank, I don't think it's that hard. I don't think that, I mean, to me, business, and this is you know, possibly disappointing to some of you, it's not a high IQ sport. You do not have to be the best and brightest to be in business. Um, now, how you sort of manage these kind of things that we've been talking about tonight you know, is difficult. Okay, so that's number one. So I'm always looking for an eager person who's willing to put a lot of effort and passion um, into how much they care about the organization and the role. That's the number one thing. Number two is what I mentioned about resumes. So you get to frame your experience. So um, I think that what you want to do is if the assumption that the other side is going to have is you wouldn't be very good at financial analysis, let's say. What you do is you go back into your background and you say, these are the things that would you know, lead you to believe that I would be good. And here's the work that I've done. You know, I've taken a month and I've gone to this course. And you know, anyone that did that at Arbor Advisors would be hired like, immediately. Like, I, I, on my own dime, I went and took this you know, finance course, and you know, I got an A in it, and this is what I want to do. And so it's sort of filling in the holes in your background and showing people that you're passionate. Now, that doesn't work all the time. Some people are going to say, no, what we really care about is these nine things, and if you only have eight of them, you don't get a job. But I think that more often than not, you can do anything you want. I mean, that's been my belief. Again, it's, it's worked for me. I, I've just been startlingly underqualified for my jobs, and it hasn't mattered. I don't, if that happened once or twice, you know, maybe it was luck. But I think you have to have good process skills and be able to frame your experience in a way that someone would want to hire you. Okay. Quick, quick, quick story I can't resist. So I was at this, uh, went to work at this Linux company. I mentioned I was a technology company. And I told them, look, I don't have a big technology background. And they said, oh, don't worry. We're all engineers. You know, we don't need the code. I mean, you're going to be the business guy. It's going to be great. Don't worry. So the first day on the job, I asked this guy, Andy Hertzfeld, who's, he basically invented the Mac toolbox. He was like, you know, employee 200 at Apple, this, you know, wizard of, of engineering skill. I said, hey, Andy, I was trying to, he said, oh, yeah, go to Fry's, buy a computer, then you need to network it, and then you need to, I'm like, whoa, network my computer. I mean, this is going to be tough. And so I didn't want to be found out to be like the non-technical person that I was. And so I was trying my hardest to network my computer and not ask any questions. And you know, I'm loading Linux on there, and I mean, you know, I could barely do Microsoft. So um, I went over and I said, hey, Andy, do you have an extra Ethernet cable? And he looks at me, and he's like, Ethernet cable, Wow. And he you know, gives me a cable, and I fumbled around. So about six months later, he says the following, yeah, you remember that day, first day on the job, and you came over and you asked for an Ethernet cable? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, we were just freaking out. We were like, we got together, the five of us were like, we hired an idiot. This guy doesn't know anything about computers. Like, can you believe it? And I said, yeah. You know, and this is after the period where I started speaking to Linux users groups, and I kind of got it. And um, I said, yeah, but I told you guys, like, I'm not technical. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we heard that loud and clear. But we thought that was sort of non-technical in a Silicon Valley sort of way, not like in an absolute sort of way. <laughs> and it didn't matter. I was, you know, doing some, some little shell scripts on, on, on my computer. So anyway, a couple, couple quick responses. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. 
So you mentioned um, interviewing and talking to people to, to kind of find out your interests or to, or to gauge a, a possible interest for a career and see if that's what you want to do. Um, what about when you're in, you're in the middle of your career or something and you want to you want to change up or something? You don't have all the time to go out and talk to people. What are some other techniques or ideas that you have for uh, going out there and determining? You know, yeah, that's a tricky one. So you've got a full-time job, and what you'd like to do is have a third of the day to, to poke around. I think you just have to do lots of lunchtime, evening time, sort of research and talking to people. Lunch tends to be, or coffee, a good time to you know, grab someone's time. Um, and so that's a tough balance. Remember, we talked about the kind of in balance of individual loyalty versus institutional loyalty. So I don't think you want to do anything that you know, takes away from your job, and you want to balance that because you want to go out with integrity. But there's no silver bullet on that. Um, I hear people use that as the excuse all the time. Well, I just, there's no possible way. I don't have any time. I can't look for something. Now, if that's literally true, so if you're in an investment banking job and it's 100 hours a week, what you should do is quit the job. I, people have this assumption that you cannot look for a job unless you're looking from a job. If you have a job, I don't buy that. Um, I just think there are always, independent of the economy, there are always jobs for good people. There are always ways to find the job that you want. I absolutely hold the assumption and always have, I could have whatever job I wanted. I can talk my way into it. And so I think, I think that whether that's literally true or not, it's more true than most people think. How about tools to investigate your interests besides interviewing and talking to people? Yeah, I mean, in terms of trying to understand your own interests, I think that you know, there's some analytical tools that help with that, some books and things. But I would just make a list of what you care about. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, choose your values. I think people aren't explicit enough about what their values are. I would make a list, like, what's important to me in life? And does that organization allow me to achieve those goals? And I would negotiate that in my interview. This is what's important to me. I want to know what you're getting. Um, you know, and, and so I think that's really important, is to write things down. I think people don't write stuff down. I mean, if all of you made a list of, OK, my first job out of school, you know, what are my criteria? And, and came up with a list of objective criteria. Came up with, what are my interests? What do I want to achieve? Um, I think that, you know, and then what are options, to go back to our negotiation framework, what are specific options that would lead me to that, people would make better choices. The way that most people make their choices is kind of like I did um, early on, which is, geez, my dad's a doctor, I don't want to be a doctor, his friends are all lawyers, maybe I'll go be a lawyer. Um, that's a bad way to choose. And so I think, you know, being a little bit more rigorous about your thinking. Um, now, another thing that's just cropped up recently in the last 10 years is career coaches. I mean, there are people that you can pay, and sometimes that's worth the money. Anyone that needed that, I certainly know of some, that will sort of sit down and interview you. There are aptitude tests that you can take that aren't just like the cheesy ones you take that say, you know, you should be a sanitation engineer when you're in sixth grade. But there are really useful tests that you could take. So I think talking to people, doing some analytics, and maybe having a career coach are all things that you can do. Yeah? Um, I have a question. Actually, I'll offer a comment on that because I just went through that process. And the biggest thing I found, I did work with a career coach, and they are helpful. But the biggest thing I found is just to follow your heart and see what little steps guide you to where you go. And when it's not like I thought it's going to be this big revelation, it's not that. It's little pieces give you information. And then when I landed, it was straight on for me. So I found that to be really helpful. Um, question I have for you is you talked about um, you talked about having fun in the job and then some compensation. And I know for yourself, you got your personal reward from stuff you do outside of your work. How important do you think the service component is to have within your job in addition to the fun and the compensation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, how important is it that sort of your value-oriented things come from your job? 
So I think it's ideal, um, but not necessary. So I don't think you have to do something. So if what you really, really care about is the environment, do you have to work in the environment? You know, I don't think so. I think, let's take that one just as a generic example, the environment. Well, you know, because I know a lot about that. I started a nonprofit that was, you know, about the environment. I did a fellowship for three years on land use planning. So I care a lot about that. Um, I think that one thing, if you go back to process-oriented skills as opposed to vertical skills, so things, what, what you want to do is whatever your passion is, think about how to support that passion. What are ways that you can do that? And I don't think it has to be through the workplace. I think the skills that you develop in your workplace can help with that. So take my experience on the environment. So I do, like I'm doing right now, a lot of speaking. And I talk to students and groups and you know, fairly, you know, have some experience doing public speaking. And so what I try to do is leverage that and go speak at public meetings for environmental groups when they need someone that you know, isn't wearing Birkenstocks and having dreadlocks. Um, and so I tend to be pretty persuasive in those environments. So I think what you want to do is think about how to leverage what you do into your interest areas as opposed to it has to be what you do full time. That being said, if you have a passion and it's your bliss and that's what you want to do, I would say do it. Follow your bliss. That's the, probably the, the best summary statement that I could make on this whole presentation. Um, you're going to figure out a way to make money. You're going to figure out a way to have fun if you're doing something you're passionate about. So a job should not be like bad medicine. It should not be, a, I'm going to suffer for some period of time, and when I get to be a big kid, then it's going to be fun. Um, it just doesn't work that way. So pick something that's fun. As soon as it's not fun, don't do it anymore. Make that transition. So on the same lines, like, a lot of times we do things that make us good in paper. Like, you know, so as, as a master's student, I, I kind of want to do startups, but then... I'm like, oh, well, I should still interview and maybe like a Goldman Sachs investment banking job would be really good on paper. So how do you, you used to at least. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how do you kind of change your focus of being good on paper versus like, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't, ch- I, I wouldn't change it. I would just eliminate it. So I, I wouldn't plan my career around how I look to others. You know, I would absolutely do. If, if, if a startup sounds good to you, do the startup. It's that simple. I wouldn't worry about creating the paper trail because the problem with creating the paper trail is... It, it's not even going to be what the people the, the people you think you're going to impress with that aren't even necessarily going to be impressed with that. I remember my interview for Harvard Business School. So um, I went in, met with the dean of admissions, and she said, um, well, gee, you know, Stan, you've got all this great experience, and you're exactly the kind of person that we want. But in so many words, she didn't say this directly because it probably would have been illegal. She said, but you're a white male working in investment banking in New York who was an athlete early on in their life. That's like the most common thing. We got a billion of those people. You know, we're looking for you know someone completely different than that. And so I thought to myself, wow, part of why I went to Wall Street, I thought that was like the road into Harvard Business School. And I find out that in fact I'm discriminated against because there are more of me than any other thing. And I was shocked. I, you know, I thought it was obvious. And so that's an example of it would have been a lot easier for me to get in, get in had I been at a startup in those days in Silicon Valley because that would have been really funky and interesting. And so you can't predict what people are going to want. Don't plan around that. Yeah, in the back. So you said that you should quit as soon as you're not having fun and you should do a job because you, you, know, you think you're going to like it. What happens if you take a job that you think you're going to like and you're going to have a good balance in and then you get there and initially it's not what you expected and you don't enjoy it? How long should you stick around? Yeah, it's a great question. So how long do you stay in a bad job? I would just, I would say only stay as long as you need to to make absolute sure, you know, to be certain that, in fact, you don't like it. So all of you, those of you that have not yet, some of you work full-time, but those of you that haven't are going to be, let me just prepare you for this, 
shocked at how bad some of the work is, right? You think, wow, I've got this big education. I've spent all this time. I'm probably going to be managing tons of people, making huge decisions. I'll probably be running the division immediately. And you get there, and they're like, yeah, why don't you staple this? And it's really, really disappointing, right? I mean, it's horrible. I just remember thinking, but I'm so smart. Don't they realize I could be, like, running this place? Um, it doesn't work that way, right? And so I would just say be a little bit careful about deciding immediately. So I would say, you know, get a little bit of perspective from other people. Is it because of the manager? Is it because of the uh, industry? Is it because of the company? Figure out why that's the case a little bit. But if you've, you know, if you've spent a good six months there and it's just not going well, I think it's okay to move. Just don't do that four times, you know? I mean, the, the thing that I'm skeptical of, very skeptical of when I look at resumes is someone that's moved every year for five years because what are the chances that I'm the organization that he or she's going to stick with, right? It's a, it's a probability thing. I only, in my organization, when I hire undergrads, I only make money if they stay three years. Like, I don't make money off anyone their first year uh, of, of work. You know, I'm essentially training them. Now, if they all said, wow, training was really great. We enjoyed that. Um, you know, I'm out of here to the next job. That's why you have to balance the individual interest and the institutional loyalty. Um, so, I would say don't be afraid you know, with, the, with that caveat and caution. Yeah. I think your advice for finding the right job is dead on, but um, I'm also worried about getting the job, also um, specifically in the economy right now, and I'm kind of scared to apply some of the things that you're, you're talking about to a job before I have it. Once I have it, I'm comfortable with it, but what's your advice on that? Like, Can I ask for informational interviews? Can I negotiate before I have a job? And Let me ask, so good question. Um, you know, let's consider the context. The economy is terrible. What are we, you know, you can't necessarily pick and choose. Um, I would say it's harder, for sure. Um, I would also say, I went to the career fair here, when was this, like a month ago? And there was like more than one company per student. All these people are trying to hire Stanford students. And so most of you can find a job. So I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that there are no jobs based on any of your individual backgrounds, you know, that would hire you. Um, First on informational interviews. So do informational interviews in risk-free situations. Go to the Stanford Alumni Network. There are people who have signed up who have said, I'm willing to talk to students. So you pick a field, and there are people who have said they're willing to talk to you. At least 50% of those people will have lunch with you, and they'll probably pay for it. Um, and so you know, not necessarily if you're trying to get a job at Google, go to Google to do informational interviews, although that might be helpful too. But there are risk-free situations and ways to learn. Okay? And I find that, I didn't mention this, but often informational interviews lead to jobs. Right? I mean, if, I were, if, if someone asked me for an informational interview, I would say yes. And if during the process of that interview I thought, wow, this is a good fit, this is an amazing person, I'd approach them about that. Okay? So in informational interviews, just look for a more risk-free profile. I would say that um, it depends in terms of the economy on how narrow your interests are. So if you're really interested in designing cars, Okay, this is a tough, tough place to get an environment. And so I would consider broadening your interests, right? Because the you know, jobs of the big three automakers are going to be harder to get than they've ever been. And so I think you, you basically want to be in industries. Actually, this is a good thought I just had. You want to be in an industry that's not as affected by the economy, right? Um, so the people that are most affected, the kind of biggest companies, um, they're laying off lots and lots of people, it's probably not where you want to be anyway. So the more dynamic companies, there's always going to be need for growth. So at my company, I keep saying this to, to other bankers, hey, we're hiring. Things are going great at Arbor Advisors. The other investment banks are laying off. People who are doing well are still going to be hiring. So it's, it's going to be more of a needle in a haystack. 
but I just wouldn't jump to the assumption um, that the traditional hiring companies, if you looked at the top 100 hirers, so again, my example, so in my class at business school, Harvard, there are 800 of us, 110 went to McKinsey out of 800, okay? So that's a great job for people. You know, there, there's some real reasons to go to McKinsey. I know some of you are going there. So I, I, I think that for the right set of interests, that's a good job. But, you know, there's probably other jobs that those people could have done, right? Why did they go there? Because it was easy. It's super easy. They showed up, you know, you know how to put things in a two-by-two two matrix. Excellent. We'll take you. <laughs> I mean, if you could, like, walk and chew gum, you get a job at McKinsey if you're from Harvard Business School. Um, you know, how long did they, So now, how many, how many of those 110 people are still at McKinsey? Two. Okay, they transitioned out pretty quickly. And so just don't, I was talking to one of you about, you know, specifically management consulting. I just think, you know, go get some skills, consider moving on quickly, unless what you want to do is become a partner, unless that lifestyle. I can't tell you how many people in investment banking, when I started, right out of undergrad, they looked around and they looked at the MDs, the managing directors. You know, the guys are in their 40s and making all the big money. And universally, almost, we looked at those guys and we said, they're cheating on their wives, they're disgusting people, we don't want to be like that. I'm going to be the one that's different. The institution's not going to affect me. You know, 20 years later, they became that guy. So, you know, think about the institutional pressures that you're going to face. They're strong. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, uh, trying not to be a specialist. Uh, but what would you advise to someone who's doing a PhD and is already on a specialist track but doesn't want to go into research, but rather it's a business or something like that? Yeah, so that's a really good time to make that transition, right? So... If you've decided you don't want to do research slash academia, there are lots of jobs, no matter what your field um, of research as a PhD, that are looking for smart, analytical people um, that have done that. And so I think the sooner you can make that transition, the better. Um, and so I think way too many people feel like they have to use their education. Like, gee, you know, I studied, uh, you know, what's the topic? I, you know, I, I studied accounting as an undergraduate. I hated it. So, so my father recommended accounting to me, and I would have been a terrible accountant. I don't even like numbers. I mean, it was just a ridiculous thing. Now, he thought practical, he's going to be able to pay the bills, accounting, that's good for Stan. Um, and so I would say that, you know, you don't want to do um, something just because you're trained in it. You know, you've got most of your work life ahead of you. That's why I say as soon as you know you want to transition, transition. Um, just don't do it five times in your career um, and things that don't work. So... You know, it gets harder the more transitions you've done. But like someone like you that's in school, I think you could do anything you wanted with your PhD. I don't think it matters. Now, it might be that you find something that's related, and even so much the better, but it doesn't have to relate. So there are more choices out there. Just like I didn't know what a mediator was when I became one, there are a lot of jobs. Most of the really good jobs, again, I said they don't interview on campus. They're jobs that you have not even heard of. And so what you have to do is do an interest-based job search as opposed to a reactive job search. You don't want to just react to who wants to hire you. You want to think about what you're passionate about and create a job. It's almost like independent study, like some of your independent study majors. Create an independent study job. Do whatever you want. I mean, you can figure out a way to get paid and do whatever you want. I'm sure of it. Thanks for uh, coming to our optional evening session. <laughs>